So yesterday, I watched two of the Star Wars movies, but there are a couple people in this church that I know spent, I think, 14 and a half hours yesterday watching Star Wars movies. A couple people starting, I think, at 8 a.m. I wasn't there for most of it. Watched through all of the Star Wars movies, well, one through six, the good ones, right, in order. Um, I know this is the second sermon in a row that I've mentioned Star Wars, so if you're not a Star Wars fan, please be gracious to me. But there's a reason I think that people love Star Wars so much. There's a reason that people will stay up for 14 hours in one day to sit and watch through the movies, because they're iconic. And there's one particular thing in the Star Wars movies that is especially iconic. Now, if you haven't watched the movies and you want to watch them someday, I just want to give a spoiler alert here. So you can maybe, you know, close your ears for 30 seconds or so. But in the second of the original movies, The Empire Strikes Back, there is a moment where there is a huge plot twist. You have Luke Skywalker, who is the main character of the series, and he's fighting against this evil dark lord called Darth Vader. And they're fighting in Cloud City, and it gets to the point where Luke is stuck and he's stranded, and Darth Vader looks like he has him, and they get into this exchange and a conversation here. And the thing that is the huge plot twist is that Darth Vader reveals to Luke Skywalker that he is his father. It's one of the most iconic plot twists in all of cinematic history. And the quote is not, Luke, I am your father, as everybody thinks. It's, no, I am your father. So we should get that straight. But even still, it's a huge plot twist. And plot twists are fantastic because they subvert your expectations, they grab your attention, they highlight something in the plot that you never would have noticed before. And as we look at Luke 19 in these 10 verses, there's one of the biggest plot twists that you see in any place in the entire Bible. But it's very easy to miss if you're not paying attention. So I want to look at these verses with you guys, and usually I give the big idea of the passage right away, but I want to wait for a minute. I want to walk through this passage and let the plot twist give us the big idea this morning. So look with me to the first four verses of the chapter, particularly right now verse one. And it verse one gives us the setting that's going on. Like any good account or story, you have a setting and characters and plot and conflict, and we'll see all of those here. The setting is that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through so in those days, Jericho was an extremely wealthy city, not super far from Jerusalem. It was known for the trees that lined the road for having good weather. Um, it had great gardens. And Herod the Great actually built his winter palace in Jericho. So in a way, it was kind of like the Palm Beach, Florida of first century Palestine. It's a place that even the king went and got away if he wanted to go to his beautiful palace with all of the pools and all of the gorgeous gardens. So it's important that this is kind of a, a wealthy city. This is a well-off city. It's a, a beautiful city to walk into. And Jesus walks into this wonderful, glorious Jericho. And then we're introduced in the second verse to the main character. His name is Zacchaeus. And it says that he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And this is the only time in the whole Bible that the word chief tax collector, it's one word in the Greek, where that word is used. In the book of Luke, we've seen quite a few tax collectors, but we have not seen a single chief tax collector. 
And I think this is very important for us because tax collectors could be fairly wealthy, but this man was the chief tax collector. He oversaw the whole tax collecting operation in one of the wealthiest cities in all of ancient Palestine. So we can confer that when it, infer when it says that he was rich, it, he wasn't just kind of rich. He wasn't, you know, above average rich. This man was probably exceedingly wealthy, the chief tax collector in an insanely, like exceedingly wealthy city. So we all know the song, right? The Zacchaeus song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. But we could also add verse two to that. Zacchaeus was a swimming in cash. A swimming in cash was he. And I think that would add another layer to that beloved child song. And that's not the first children's song I'll mention today. So, you know, beware. All right. So we have the setting in Jericho. We have the character, this wealthy man, Zacchaeus. And then we have the plot and the conflict. When I say conflict, I don't mean people are going to get in a fight. I mean the problem that needs to be overcome. So the plot is that Zacchaeus is seeking to see who Jesus was. Those two words are going to be incredibly important for us in this passage. Seeking and seeing. Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus because he wants to see him. And particularly, it says, because he wants to see who he is. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I think this is a good example for us. This man is seeking Jesus, and we see that he is even willing to go to great lengths and even to humble himself in a way to seek after Jesus and to see who he is. And we're often so passive in desiring to see Jesus. Josh asked a great question at the beginning of the service. Who or what are you seeking after? And far too often, we're not like Zacchaeus here. We are not seeking Jesus. We're not desiring to see him in the way that we should. So we should learn from the example of Zacchaeus. But as he's seeking Jesus, as he desires to see him, we see that there's a problem that needs to be overcome. It says that Zacchaeus is a wee little man. He is small of stature. And so this crowd surrounding Jesus prevents him from being able to see Jesus and who he is. So Zacchaeus thinks quickly, and he runs on ahead. And he knows the crowd is probably moving along one of the main roads. So he goes on ahead, he climbs up in a tree, and he thinks, as this crowd passes by, I'll be able to look down and I'll be able to see Jesus. I'll be able to overcome the problem of my shortness, right? That's the main conflict or problem. But this is exactly where the twist happens. This is where we have to pay attention here in verse 5. Zacchaeus, remember, he's desperately seeking to see Jesus. And look what happens in verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. Do you see the twist? It's okay if you don't. I want to highlight it here. So remember, verses 1 through 4, the big question is, will Zacchaeus be able to see Jesus? Will Zacchaeus be able to see Jesus? Will he seek him? Will Zacchaeus find Jesus? But the problem isn't resolved by Zacchaeus seeing Jesus. The problem is resolved in verse 5 by Jesus seeing Zacchaeus. It never even tells us that Zacchaeus saw Jesus. We know that he did. What it does tell us, though, is that Jesus looked up in the tree. Jesus saw Zacchaeus. Jesus called him. Jesus invited him over, right? Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. That's the big tw uh, plot twist here. And that's the big idea of this whole passage. 
the whole time you're thinking it's about Zacchaeus' search for Jesus, when really it's about Jesus' search for Zacchaeus. So the big idea is Jesus is the true seeker. Jesus is the true seeker. And we're going to look at four different aspects in the second half of this passage about Jesus being the true seeker. So it's going to be Jesus is the true seeker who seeks the lost, one, according to his plan, two, according to his grace, three, to bring transformation, and four, to bring salvation. I'll read those one more time for you who are taking notes here in the front. Jesus is the true seeker who seeks the lost according to his plan, according to his grace, to bring transformation, and to bring salvation. All right. Let's look at the first of those. Jesus is the true seeker who seeks the lost according to his plan. So look with me again to verse 5 where we saw that big plot twist. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. The interesting word here is must. It could be translated sometimes in the Greek as necessary or it is necessary, and it's actually used fairly regularly in the Gospel of Luke. And, it's, and there's a lot of ways that it's used in reference to Jesus. I want to look just at a couple of those, and I think it'll highlight what's going on in our passage. In Luke 2.49, Jesus says, I must, same word there, I must be in my Father's house. In Luke 4.43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke 9.22, and this is the most common use. The Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and be killed and on the third day be raised. And that, ha- that's, that occurs throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, I must suffer. I must die. I must be raised. It's necessary that Jesus do those things as his, in his mission and plan to come. And then the last one in Luke is Luke 24, 44. Everything written about me, this Jesus, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And I think all of those uses should make sense to us, right? It is necessary, according to the plans and purposes of God, that Jesus would come, that he would preach the gospel, that Jesus would come and scriptures would be fulfilled concerning him, that he would come and he would be rejected and suffer and die in our place and he would rise from the dead. Those all make sense. But then you read this passage and you say, what could it mean that Jesus must go to Zacchaeus' house? What does it mean that he needs to go there and he needs to go there today? It means that Jesus seeking Zacchaeus is a part of his plan. Jesus came to seek the lost. And he didn't just, just only come to seek the lost in general. He came to seek his lost sheep. He came to Jericho to seek out Zacchaeus. Part of his plan was to come there and to find Zacchaeus and say, I must come to your house today. Zacchaeus, out of all of the people in this city, I came here for you. I came here to find you. Jesus, in his plan, has come to save sinners. And not just sinners in general, but his sheep. And the good news is that he will find them. He will always find his sheep. 
He will never fail in his search for us. He'll find us and he will save us. Now, when we say that Jesus coming and him seeking all of this, him going to Zacchaeus' house according to God's plan, that doesn't mean that our seeking of Jesus is unimportant or that we don't seek after him truly, because we do. And we see that Zacchaeus sought after Jesus. And it doesn't mean that our response to Jesus is unimportant. We look and we see that Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. And then if you look at verse 6, what does Zacchaeus do? It says, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. I think we could preach a, a whole sermon just on these verses. Because Zacchaeus responds promptly, he responds obediently, and he responds joyfully. Think, parents, what would it be like if your children responded every time promptly, that you ask them to do something and they do it that minute, and obediently they do everything you tell them to do, and they, and they respond joyfully. They don't you know, say, okay, I guess I'm going to go clean my room. They say, oh, yay, I want to go clean my room. I'm so glad to obey you promptly and obediently and joyfully, oh, my parent. But this should be the way that we respond to Jesus. Zacchaeus' response is important. We should respond when Jesus calls to us. And as Psalm 95, 7 says, today, today, notice that verse, word, word both in Zacchaeus' account here and in Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear the voice of Jesus, today, if he's calling to you, respond to him. Listen to him. Don't harden your hearts to him. So Jesus is the true seeker. He seeks the lost according to his plan. And then secondly, we see that Jesus is the true seeker who seeks the lost according to his grace. For this, I want to highlight and look at the crowd's response to Jesus inviting himself over. Look with me to verse 7. And when they saw it, again, we have that seeing going on so much in this passage. They, they see what Jesus is doing, the crowd. They all grumbled, a big contrast to Zacchaeus' joy. They're, they're angry, and he's joyful. And they say, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner crowd is angry. They believe that Zacchaeus is unworthy of Jesus going to his house. They don't think that Jesus should associate with lowly tax collectors like that. And as we've already mentioned in Luke, there was a, a way that the tax collectors in Jerusalem and in Israel in that time were despised by the Jews because they were viewed as being traitors. Tax collectors would associate with the Roman government that was occupying the land and they would collect the taxes for the Roman government and they would be allowed to keep the extra for themselves. And Zacchaeus wasn't just, again, any tax collector to the Jews. He was the chief tax collector who was getting insanely rich by taking money from his fellow people. So as you can imagine, the Jews didn't like this man. This man was corrupt. This, this man was the epitome of what it meant to be a traitor, to betray God's people. And it's one thing when we read through the book of Luke to see Jesus welcoming the outcasts, Jesus welcoming the poor, Jesus going to the sick and healing them. But here we see Jesus going to a corrupt, a corrupt rich man and calling him to himself. And the crowd is shocked. And I think our culture would be shocked at this too. And I love how one commentator, a man named James Edwards, put this. So listen to this quote. It's 
it highlights this so well. He says, Luke's story of the incarnation is not developed according to the stereotype of justice in which the poor are befriended and the rich condemned. The fellowship of Jesus is not offered as vindication of poor or condemnation of rich, but as good news of great joy to all who are lost, whether poor or rich. Grace is forever scandalous because it is forever undeserved. It is doubly scandalous for Zacchaeus, a rich oppressor. Grace is a scandal because it insists on including those whom we wish to exclude. I love that line. Grace is a scandal because it insists on including those that we wish to exclude. So the grumbling and anger of the crowd highlights just how glorious and shocking the grace of Jesus truly is toward lost sinners. And let's not be like that crowd. We need to ask ourselves regularly the question, who do we deem unworthy of the grace of God? Because we need to remember that we too are unworthy. And I think that anybody shocked by Jesus fellowshipping with sinners doesn't truly yet understand the gospel of the grace of God. Because for Jesus to fellowship with anyone is for him to fellowship with an undeserving sinner by his grace. So we need to rid ourselves of the idea that some people deserve grace, this group of people over here, and this group of people over here doesn't deserve grace. Because grace by definition to all people is undeserved. You can't deserve it. So Jesus is the true seeker and he seeks the lost according to his plan. He seeks the lost according to his grace. And, we, and third, we see that Jesus seeks the lost to bring transformation. Look with me here to verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So here we see that when Jesus seeks and finds the lost, he does not leave them unchanged. Zacchaeus was a rich and corrupt man, but when he met Jesus, something changed. And it wasn't that he stopped being rich at that moment. It's that his relationship with his wealth was changed. Instead of hoarding his wealth, instead of his wealth being an idol and something that he used to take from others, his wealth became a source of generosity. His wealth became something that he could use to bless other people. Two weeks ago, we looked at the rich ruler in Luke 18. And all of these accounts here in Luke 18 and 19, at least the front end of 19, are all lumped together. They flow together. They're, they're themes that kind of start them and end them, comparisons and contrasts between people. And I think that Zacchaeus here is meant to be a stark contrast to the rich ruler. The rich ruler, he came to Jesus and he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus commanded him to sell his possessions and to give to the poor. But instead of obeying Jesus, the rich ruler went away sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus responded, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So wealth itself doesn't disqualify someone from the kingdom of God. 
but it can be a huge stumbling block that prevents people from embracing the call of Jesus. Because wealth can become a great idol in us, something that we seek our joy in, something that we seek our security in. But Zacchaeus, instead of holding on to his wealth, instead of saying, I want that more than I want Jesus, Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus shatters his idol. It changes him. It takes that idol that had been deeply rooted in him and pulled it away. And I don't know what idols have spread their roots deeply in your heart, but know that Jesus is about the work of uprooting idols in the hearts of his followers. Yesterday was a beautiful day outside. Today's a little bit colder. Um, but as the weather warms up, as we spend more time outside, we get to the season that Lexi and I spend a lot of time in our yard and in our garden, getting our gardens ready, beginning to plant things. We love gardening. It's one of our big hobbies. Last year during COVID, we got a lot of extra time in our yard. We, we were like, we're going to rearrange things. So we dug up pastas and moved them around. We planted new plants. We kind of changed where the garden was and expanded it, did, did uh, raised beds and things like that. And one of the things that we wanted to do is to get rid of this sumac tree that was next to our house because it just kind of kept growing up and having little shoots coming up next to it and was taking over. So we said, we'll cut it down. And any of you who have ever uprooted a plant, particularly the tree, know that it's not an easy thing. Chopping it down was really easy. I just took an ax to it and took a few swipes to get right through it sumac tree, right? But then I spent a couple hours digging at the root of this thing. Because if you don't get all of the roots out, you know that there's a big problem in store for you. And sure enough, about a month after we had dug it up, these little sumac shoots started springing up all over the garden and in the yard. Because clearly, with all of my work, I hadn't gotten all of the roots out. And there was, they grew up so much that there was one day where I went outside and decided to count them as I pulled them up. And I counted over 100 little baby sumac trees that I pulled out of my yard in a single day. So I don't even want to put an estimate, but we probably pulled multiple thousands of little sumac trees out of our yard because I had failed to get the root completely out. Pulling out roots is hard. And when we think about our sin, when we think about our idols, it's kind of like trying to get rid of a tree. It's not so easy as just coming and chopping it out, saying, I'm just going to stop doing that and modifying our actions outwardly because there's a root that impacts it as well. The root of sin lies within us. It's not something that you merely change outwardly and you deal with the problem. Sin and idols need to be pulled up. They need to be rooted out. And it's a lot harder, actually, than even rooting out a sumac tree, which I clearly couldn't do on my own. So when we think about the roots in our hearts, the idols and the sin, it's way beyond the work that we can do for ourselves. We need a master gardener to come in, someone that has a backhoe and can just dig out the yard and pull all the roots out. And Jesus is the one who is able to do that. Jesus is the one who can uproot and shatter our idols. Jesus calls sinners. He calls the unworthy, but he doesn't call them and leave them un changed. So run to Jesus. Run to him day in and day out. Run to him in repentance and confession. Run to him for the strength to fight against your sin, because he is the one that can do that transforming work in you, just as he did in Zacchaeus. So Jesus is the true seeker who seeks the lost according to his plan, according to his grace, and to bring transformation. And lastly, in the last two verses, we'll see that Jesus seeks the lost 
to bring salvation. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. There are a few really important things I think we need to see just in these last two verses. First, it's really important for us to note that Zacchaeus wasn't saved because he gave up his possessions, right? And that's related to this second thing, that Zacchaeus, not by giving up his possessions, but by faith was saved. And that may not be initially obvious. You may read it and say he got rid of his stuff, and then Jesus declared, today you are saved. So you may think that him giving up his stuff, that good work is the root of his salvation. But Jesus goes on, and he says, since this man also is a son of Abraham. So the salvation is because of, it is since he is a son of Abraham. And so I want to focus in on that particular phrase, son of Abraham. And if we understand it, I think we'll have the ability to understand what's really going on here in this passage. So when Jesus says, this man is a son of Abraham, he isn't talking about genealogical lineage. Because Zacchaeus was already a Jew. Genealogically, he was already descended from Abraham. So that isn't what changed here. When Jesus says that he's a son of Abraham, he means that he's a spiritual descendant of Abraham by faith, that he has trusted in God. I think there's a couple of verses that highlight this for us. The first is going all the way back to the account of Abraham in Genesis. Genesis 15, 6, God enters into a covenant with Abraham. And it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. Then in Galatians 3, Paul writes in a couple places in this chapter, verses in verse 7, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And then later in verse 29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. So when Jesus says to to Zacchaeus, you are a son of Abraham, this is what he's talking about. You are saved because like Abraham, you have believed in God. Because of your faith, you are a son of Abraham. Because you are connected with me and I am the Christ, you are an offspring of Abraham. So it is by his faith, it's not by his works. And lastly, we need to see that salvation is a divine work. If we go back to the rich ruler, when Jesus said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Do you remember how the crowd reacted when Jesus said that, those things? They said, who then can be saved? And Jesus responded, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then here, Just a number of verses later, we see Zacchaeus, a rich man, a man of whom the crowd would say, it's impossible for this man to be saved. But Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus does the impossible work of saving this rich and corrupt sinner. Over the last three weeks, we've seen it over and over again that Jesus is the one who saves, that salvation needs to come from God. Jesus does what is impossible with man, with the rich 
when we see in the account of the rich ruler. Jesus alone opens the eyes of the blind, which we saw last week with blind Bartimaeus. And here we see that Jesus alone can seek and save the lost. So, for a final piece of application to kind of wrap this whole thing up. We need to see that we should seek Jesus. But ultimately, ultimately we should not find our hope in our ability to seek him and to find him, but in his ability to seek us and to find us. The reality that salvation is both the work of God in its execution and in its application should rid us of any self-sufficiency. Any ability to think that I can come before God on my own terms, that I can seek him and I can find him on my own. No, we need to rest in Jesus and him alone and the work that he can do both in seeking us and finding us and in his death for us and his resurrection for us. Jesus alone can accomplish, can accomplish something that we could never accomplish for ourselves. And when we turn from our self-sufficiency and when we rest in Jesus alone, that's the very essence of faith. That's the very essence of what it means to be a son of Abraham. You cannot save yourself, but Jesus can save you. You cannot seek him and find him on your own, but he can seek and find you. You cannot uproot the sin in your life on your own, but Jesus can uproot the sin for you. So find rest from your weary search for self-sufficiency and know that if you belong to Jesus, you have been found. I want to end with one verse from one of my favorite old hymns called I Sought the Lord. And it gets right at this piece here. It says, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. So do seek with all your heart. Seek Jesus with all your heart. But seek because you have been sought. And know that you will find because you have been found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus into the world to seek and to save the lost. That he came not just to save people in general, but he came to find his sheep, to call them to himself, to draw them from their sin and change them. Father, help us to find all of our peace and all of our hope in his work and his work alone and not in our own abilities. Father, help us to worship Christ with our whole life. Help us by his strength and power to fight against the sin that holds us, the idols that dwell in our hearts. Help us to know and rest in the fact that Jesus has sought us and that he has found us. We pray in his name. Amen.